Well, Matthew chapter 18 is where we are at today. We are starting in verse 1. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire than than with two hands, two feet, and thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? For if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that uh, that never went astray. So uh, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that, that one of these little ones should perish. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as we dive into Jesus' teaching here. God, teach us. I pray that you would help me as I seek to communicate uh, your truth here, that I would communicate only your truth, that I would not stand on my own authority, but only on the authority of your word. I pray that you would convict our hearts of sin that is in our life, that we would turn to Christ, that we would see that as we have already sung, that the stain has been washed away, and that in him we stand. In him we have forgiveness. God, let us experience the warmth uh, of our shepherd this morning, the one who has sought us and found us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. When, when did humility become a thing? Have you ever thought about that? You know, in the ancient world, humility was not a virtue. In his book, uh, Humilitas, John Dixon explains that in the ancient world, what was considered to be a virtue was actually the opposite of humility, which is pride. In the ancient world, pride was a virtue. Those who would be lifted up around themselves, those who would brag about themselves. You could read the Achievements of the Divine Augustus, written in the year 14 A.D. Jesus was about, what, 12? Augustus writes his own achievements, and uh, it's, it's literally 2,500 words of bragging. That's just all he does. I this, I did this, I accomplished this, 
I was celebrated this many times. I, 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 I. It's all he does is he just brags about himself. And that is seen in the ancient world as virtuous. The person, on the other hand, who had humility in the ancient world, that person was seen to be kind of strange. Like, of course, you would humble yourselves before the gods. You would humble yourselves before the, uh, the emperors. But, but someone who would humble themselves before an equal, that person would be seen as morally suspicious. Something's wrong with that individual. Well, when did then humility become a virtue? Academic, re- academic research showed that uh, uh, there, there was this, what you could call maybe a, a humility uh, revolution that took place. Now, this is independent academic research from a secular university. There was a humility revolution that took place right around the middle of the first century that came out of Jerusalem. You see, there was something that happened that took place around the middle of the first century that caused uh, this, this new movement, this new following of people who redefined what it means to be great. Not by self-service, but by self-sacrifice. What this study research uh, uh, group found, discovered was that uh, right around the death of Jesus, a revolution took place. And pride was no longer a virtue. Humility. I want to talk to you today on this theme, true Greatness. True greatness. Look, at, look in your text at verse 1 right there. The disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him this question. They say, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Which one of us is, is going to be the best one? And, and there's a sense there of, of competition. There's a sense here of, of uh, uh, worldly thinking. Who's, and th- by the way, they have no shame in asking this question. They're just simply following the cultural norm of the day. Who's going to be the best, me or him? Who's going to be the most preeminent? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And then in verses 2 and 3, Jesus answers him, them in a way that uh, is, is just would have been so countercultural for the world that they live in. So, so far in Matthew, we have seen the king introduced. There's a new king, and there's a new kingdom, and this king is the king. He's the king of kings. He is the eternal king, and he has a kingdom that is here, but not yet. It's, it's also to come. We have seen those who have come into this kingdom through faith, the response of faith. And then Jesus has taught in Matthew 16 that, that there is this new community, uh, this, this gathering, or the Greek word is ekklesia. We translate that today, church, that is forming around these people who are coming into this kingdom by faith. Now in Matthew 18, Jesus again goes back to this teaching of who this church is. 
So, so far we've seen so much of who Jesus is. Now Jesus is turning it and he's focusing the attention on you and I. And Matthew 18 is showing us this is, this is how you relate to each other. This is what it looks like to be in community with each other. This is what it looks like to serve one another. And by the way, Matthew 18 is the answer for who is the greatest. The question comes, who is the greatest? And Jesus turns it and he, sa- he just talks about serving each other, loving each other. You see also in the text we see in verse 14 that, that God doesn't despise those who are, are, have drifted away, but rather God pursues them. You see, also in the ancient world, those who would be sort of the wanderer within the church, those who would kind of get into sin, they would turn their backs on uh, what, they, what, what they are being taught. In the ancient world, that person would have been looked down on, would have been hated and despised. But no, God, the Father, doesn't despise the one that's struggling, doesn't despise the weak. But rather, greatness is seen when the Father and when we, us, model the Father's heart when we go after the weak, the hurting. When we see them not as someone to be despised and rejected, but we see them as a little lamb who's wandering off in what they believe to be greener fields. Listen, since God doesn't despise any of his children, True greatness is seen and is found in humble service to God's people. Who are the greats? Who are the greats? Let's look at it. Look, let me show you three marks of what it means to be truly great here. Contrary to what the world believes Three marks. The first one is found in the first couple of verses. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, get humble. Or you become small. If you want to be great, get small. So look at it. The the, the question comes to Jesus in verse verse 1. Who's going to be the greatest? Verse 2, Jesus essentially has this real live uh, parable. He calls a child over to him and Maybe puts the child on his lap, and, and he uses this child as an illustration, as an example. He says, look, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become like a little child. Look at the text in verse 3. He says, you've got to turn. Everybody say, turn. Turn. That, that Greek word for turn right there is actually the word for convert or change. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to become great, you've got to change your mind, your ideas of what greatness actually looks like. You've got to stop running after what you think greatness is. You've got to essentially forget greatness for a moment. Stop trying to be great. Let me illustrate it this way. I, last night, I, I, I had another sleepless night. I just, for some reason, I, I simply go through these seasons of life where I'm not struggling with any kind of anxiety. I just can't sleep, can't go to sleep. And here's what I typically do. 
when I can't go to sleep, I'm laying in my bed and, and I start talking to myself. Go to sleep. <sighs> go to sleep. <laughs> right? And then I, and I get all angry and I start to sweat and I'm just like, go to sleep. And I start yelling at myself. It doesn't help, does it? You guys ever like tried to go to sleep? You can't do it. I actually did some research on this because I'm dying here, all right? Did some research on it. And what I discovered was uh, that when, when you can't sleep at night, the best thing to do is to get up, to stop trying to go to sleep. Get up and focus on something else. Get up, do something relaxing, maybe read a book, keep the lights low. And then, and then after 15 minutes, go back to bed, and you'll go back to sleep. It's beautiful. It works. It works. It's almost as if if you're trying, the more you, the more you try to sleep, the less you're able to sleep. In order to go to sleep, you've got to stop trying. This is why people count sheep. I'm just going to do something else. I'm going to count the number of sheep that I, I can imagine. Look, no different with greatness. The more you try to be great, the less great you are. So here are these disciples saying, who's going to be the greatest? They're looking at themselves. They're, uh, they're, they're focused on their own status of greatness. And Jesus essentially says, you've got to forget all of that. You have to stop. You have to turn. You have to change. You have to be converted. You have to become, instead of like someone who's grasping for greatness, you have to become, he says, like this little child. Think of it throughout the scriptures. Abraham. When God came to Abraham, Abraham had nothing. He had no son. He had no land. He had nothing. When God came to Moses, he had a speech problem and an anger issue. When God came to Rahab, she was working as a harlot, living in, in a condemned city. When God came to David, he was the, the youngest of all of his brothers. He was, he was a lowly shepherd. I Meaning God comes to the one who's small. God comes to the child. God comes to the one whose eyes are not set too high. He says, if you want to be great, you've got to become small. You've got to recognize that you have nothing more to offer than a child. Essentially, what he's saying here in these first couple verses is you've got to stop looking at yourself. Why is it that we all struggle with fear, shame, and guilt? It's because we have our eyes on our own abilities, our own looks, our own attributes, and we never add up. Listen, striving for greatness according to the world is a rat race. And you will end with nothing more than fear, shame, and guilt. Because the more we look at ourself, the, 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 the more wrong we're going to find with ourself. Jesus is saying, friends, if you want to be great, you've got to stop looking at yourself. Listen, friends, you could become great in the eyes of the world. 
You could achieve greatness, whatever that might mean. Autographs. What, what does it mean to be great in the eyes of the world? People want to get your, their photo with you. Come on, help me out. Money, success, ideas. You got creative ideas, status. All of these things, yo, you, you could become great in the eyes of the world and end up a stranger before God. That is not true greatness. Get your eyes off of yourself. Change. Secondly, he, he goes on and he, he says, essentially, start looking at Christ. So in verse 4, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child into my name receives me. Uh, Verse 3, let me skip back a little bit. uh, Unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does he mean by that? Do you guys remember uh, ever a moment in your life where you were lost as a child, maybe in the mall with your parents, with your mother, and you turn around and your mother is nowhere to be seen, and you realize that all of a sudden you are by yourself. Can anybody ever remember a moment like that? Really, like, I guess that happened to me all the time, and like four people, seriously, agree, can resonate? I must have just been a wandering little kid, I guess. There we go. Here, I see that hand. I see that hand. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible feeling as a child. All of a sudden, you, as a child, you feel helpless. You feel vulnerable. You feel, you feel what you are. You're weak. Like every child essentially knows that they're weak. This is why they're afraid of strangers. This is why they need to be under the, the sight of a guardian. They're weak. They can be taken advantage of. You see what Jesus is saying here? If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like a child. What does he mean by that? He means you need to become vulnerable. You need to become weak. You need to recognize what you actually are. You're lost. You need that sense of panic. You need that sense of like, oh my goodness, if I can't find my father, I'm I'm dead. I've got nothing. I'm like a child wandering in the mall all alone with tears running. Like, when you get to that place in life, oh, now you're ready to come into the kingdom. That's what the greats look like. They look like people who are 100% entirely dependent on Jesus Christ. This is the first step in coming into the kingdom, is becoming small, is recognizing that you actually have needs taking our eyes off of ourselves and focusing on our Father. Listen, if you have ever been, uh, as a child, lost, you also know the joy of what it feels like to be found. When you see your guardian's face again, just how the joy that you have in that moment, the sense of security and peace. Have you ever had that kind of joy looking at Christ? We turn our eyes to Christ. We feel the need and we see him and we treasure him. He is the one that we've been looking for. He has found us. You know, we often sing this song, I need thee. 
Oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee. I need thee every hour. Every hour. I don't just simply need thee at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. I don't need thee only when things seem to go bad in my life. And now I'm calling out. I don't need thee only when I wake up in the middle of the night freaking out. No, I need thee every hour. In my moments of success, we need him. In our moments of doing well, we need him. In our, in our darkest moments, friends, we need him. We need him at work. Every hour of work, you need him. You need him to keep you, your attention focused in the right direction. You need him so that you don't begin to find your identity in your success or in your failure. You need him when you get onto your bank account and you look at the numbers. You need him as you seek to be, be a faithful single Christian or as you seek to love your spouse. You need him every hour of every day. I would even re rewrite that song. I need you every second of every hour. There's never a moment when we don't need Jesus Christ. The greats recognize that. The greats have that sense of need. The greats are that small. Oh, they're like a child. I need thee all the time. Going on. In, in some ways, what, what Jesus does is Matthew 18, 1 through 5 is his introduction. 1 through 4 is his introduction. And he creates now a foundation through which the rest of his teaching comes. So he's basically answering the disciples' question, who's the greatest, by saying the greatest is the one who is needy. The greatest is the one who's changed and they're humble. That's the great, the great individual. But then he goes on to show what it looks like to practice this kind of greatness. The way that we ought to think about sin. The way that we ought to think about each other. So secondly, we see that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they protect the weak. The greatest in the, king, in the, in the kingdom of heaven protect the weak. Before I get into the text here, Under Armour, does anybody know what their slogan is? Protect this house. I was going to say, if you don't know that, you've got to just move to another city. <laughs> protect this house. You know, that slogan, they, they came up with it sitting in, uh, in a house, actually. The executives were together in one of their houses. Kevin Plank was there, the owner. And, um, and they were all trying to come up with a catchy slogan that would appeal to fighters, competitors, winners. Protect this house. Sense of this is, this is my house and I'm going to protect it. It's a call to fighters everywhere to stand firm in their resolve to win. If you've ever been to stadiums or gymnasiums or arenas that are sponsored by Under Armour, what do you see hanging on the wall? You don't really see the, the, the logo Under Armour. You see the slogan, protect this house. It becomes a call for those home teams to protect their turf from the opponent that's coming. Protect it. 
Well, this is the call that Jesus is giving us. Jesus is essentially saying the greatest are those who protect this house. The greatest are those who recognize who the opponent is, who we're protecting. Let me get into it here a little bit with you. So we see in verse 7, or we see, let's, let's go back to verse 5. He says, whoever receives such child in my name receives me. Now, quick question. Is Jesus actually talking about children here? Well, no, he very well could be, but, but child is an analogy that he's, re, that he's using to refer to in verse 6. He says, those little ones who believe in me. He's referring to all believers everywhere to be a little one, to be someone who has been humbled, someone who has come to him. So now what he's saying is, is whoever receives one of these believers in my name receives me, but, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones uh, who believe in me, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea and drowned. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven understand that it would be better to be drowned in the sea than to cause someone to sin. It would be better to be drowned than to cause somebody to sin. That word to sin right there in verse 6 is the word to stumble. Uh, this is referring to someone who puts a stumbling block in front of another individual. And, and through their effort in putting that stumbling block in front of another individual, they cause that person to trip over the stumbling block and they fall. This is a reference in the Bible to sin. Have you ever placed a stumbling block in front of another individual? Have you ever caused, led another individual into sin? Jesus goes on and he says, he says it would be better than for that person to have a great millstone fastened around their neck and, th and drown in the depth of the sea. Like Jesus is not playing games here. Like, well, what, 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 if you were standing here with Jesus Christ, all right, you're hearing him deliver this sermon. How many people do you think are going to walk away and say, man, that guy is just like too much? <laughs> he thinks way too much of sin. He goes on in verse 7, he says, woe to the world. For temptation, uh, because of temptations to sin. Then, then he says that it's necessary that some come, meaning there are going to be, be, be people that fall. There are going to be stumbling blocks. Like most of the time, friends, when you sin, well, I shouldn't say most of the time, but often when you sin, someone else had something to do with that, right? Like we help each other to sin all the time. And so it's going to happen. People are going to stumble and fall. There are going to be people who cause others to sin, and, and, and he's even going to talk about the one who does sin, and, and they're like a little lamb, and we've got to go after them and pull them back, but the one who causes it, he says, woe to them. This is a word of condemnation. It's a word of judgment. Woe to the one through whom it comes.
someone struggles with a heart prone toward, uh, toward gossip and toward anger and toward demonizing someone else, and then you come up to that person and you say, hey, can I, just, can I tell you about what I saw? Can I tell you about what I heard? And you share just a little bit of gossip with that individual. And you cause so much sin in their heart. Woe to you. Woe to the person who causes another to sin. Who causes their spouse to sin. Who causes their boyfriend or their girlfriend to sin. Who causes their fellow church member to sin. Who causes an unknown individual on the internet to sin somewhere else. You see, the greats recognize that we need to protect this house. The greats recognize that it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the harbor and drowned than to cause someone to sin. Oh, how guilty we are. Friends, if this was literally applied to us, every single one of us would be at the bottom of the harbor right now. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ died in your place? All of the punishment that I deserve for putting stumbling blocks in front of people that I love, all of the punishment that I deserve was placed on the Jesus Christ, and he died in my place. Thanks be to God for that. What a great Savior he is. How loving he is. What a shepherd he is to die in our place. And then listen, our motivation then to not cause another brother or sister to fall into sin has nothing to do with then guilt or fear, fear of, 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 of eternal death, but our motivation is just simply drawn from the wellspring of his love for us. He died for my sin. How can I lead anyone else into it? God, give me the strength to be strong. To, to, to stand up, to stand firm. I want to charge you all. Protect this house. Protect this house from who? Who are the opponents? Uh, who are our opponents? It's, it's not flesh and blood, but it is principalities and powers. It's sin. It's Satan. Do you realize how sinful sin is? I mean, a couple of things we could just draw from this. Sin is exceedingly sinful. Sin is more sinful. I mean, I, it's stupid to even say that. That's like saying dirt is dirty or muddy water has a lot of mud in it. No, sin is, sin is utterly sinful, and you don't realize that. I don't think you understand how sinful sin is. Or we would cherish Christ more. You, you see, we don't cherish the gospel because we don't understand how sinful sin is. Sin will deceive you, sin will mock you, sin will choke you, and sin will ultimately kill you. We are not joking around when we talk about sin, and that's why Jesus is so strong about these, these kind of things here. Our opponent is principalities and powers. The enemy, sin, and death. Protect this house against the opponent. Who is the house? The house is not a building, but it's the people. We are the temple, the, the, the men and women saved by grace. Protect the house. Protect each other. 
go to war for each other, fight for each other, do nothing that would cause someone to sin. The greatest in the kingdom, get it. Thirdly, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, pursue the wandering. So not only do they protect each other, but they also see the little lamb that's kind of wandering off, and they pursue the wandering. Look at verses 12 and verse 13. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? You know, sheep, we've talked about this before, so pardon me if you've heard me explain this. It's such a difficult concept. Sheep are dumb. Everybody just say that with me. Sheep are dumb. No, like you mean it. Like you understand it. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are really dumb. Oh, now I'm getting offended because Jesus calls me a sheep. (laughs) No, sheep are what? Sheep are dumb. Right, exactly. So check it out. A, a, A sheep, we talked about this before, They'll see a green pasture, or they'll see another uh, field across the way, and it seems greener to the sheep, and they're going to wander over just to see if it's greener. But they are wandering away from the flock. They're wandering away from the shepherd. Ultimately, they're wandering toward a pack of wolves. But they're dumb. And the grass isn't even any greener. They just think it might be. You don't put up any fences around sheep. If you don't, put up, if you don't have a shepherd watching over the sheep, they will just scatter and wander to their death because sheep are dumb. And Jesus calls us, you said it, not me. <laughs> you are a, <laughs> there you go, straight, straight to the point. That's why I like Tony. Thank you, Tony. Amen. So, uh, uh, green grass, uh, you know, here's the deception of sin. You'll have a spouse wander into an adulterous affair because they actually believe that the grass is greener over there. They actually believe that they're making a wise and right decision in the moment. Singles might get into bed with each other because the grass seems greener than celibacy. Someone might just say, you know, I don't feel like getting up every Sunday morning and gathering with the church just simply because the grass in the bed seems greener. I mean, the reason any of us would wander, it's... Nobody wanders simply because we just woke up one day and we said, you know, I'm going to disobey God's word. I just don't want to open my Bible today and hear what God has. I just want to, I'm intentionally wandering away. Listen, friends, it's, sin is much more deceptive than that. You'll never think that way. No, you just simply see grass somewhere else outside of Uh, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, and his word, you see some grass somewhere else, and you say, that grass just seems a little greener today. I'm just going to nibble at it. I'm not going to go far. 
and you're nibbling and you look up and you see another field. Ooh, that grass looks really green over there. Well, just nibble over there a little bit. And we just keep nibbling away. Friends, we are wanderers. This is why, the, I mean, you've got to understand the way that Jesus is shifting their cultural thinking here. The person who's doing quote-unquote bad things is not to be despised. We're not to say, oh, that person is such a, such a terrible person. I, I hate that person. They are the least of the king. No, Jesus says they are like dumb sheep nibbling in green grass. Let your heart break for them. That's what Jesus is showing us here. Don't be angry toward them. Don't demonize them. Let your heart break for them. And so he, he shows us the concern. We've got 99 on the hill, and we lose one. Will not a good shepherd go after the one? The answer is yes, of course. Lost. I have a tendency. I don't even know where it is right now. I have a tendency to misplace my wallet. If it was in my pocket, I would pull it out and show it to you. But I've misplaced it. I think it's in my bag. Um, often, I'll have this conversation with my wife, and I'll say, Hey, Jess, do you know where my wallet is? And uh, she'll say, oh. And then I know what's coming next. She says, you lost your wallet again? And then I say, no, I've just misplaced it. I just don't know where it is right now. It's not lost, right? Lost is lost like it's lost. I might have lost it maybe once or twice in my life misplace it, how many days are in a year, twice a day, do the math. What Jesus is talking about here with this deception of sin and sort of wandering off into green grass or lost sheep, listen, when you get lost in sin, you are not misplaced, you're lost. You are just, you're lost. I I mean, seriously, if if it is not for supernatural intervention in your life, you are lost. Sin is that deceptive. And you will just keep nibbling away, and the wolves have surrounded you. You're lost. Listen, the greatest in the kingdom understand that, and they go after the lost. They go after the lost because they know how deceptive and how destructive sin is, and their heart breaks for them. Some ways that we can pursue and 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 understand who we, it is that we are to love. Friends, there are membership directories right on the back table. Grab a membership directory. Pray through the membership directory regularly. Know who's part of the church. Pray for them. Know what they're struggling with. You don't see them for a while. That should concern you. That's, the greats are concerned about these things. Uh, 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 be part of a community group. We have community groups that happen throughout the week. Join one. It's a great way to just be able to practice this kind of care and concern for actual flesh and blood people on a week-in, week-out basis. If you're not a member of the church, join the church. But you can't really care for each other in this kind of way unless we're committed to each other. So commit to these brothers and sisters. Commit to them and say, I'm going to pursue you in this way. I'm going to love you in this way. And I want you to pursue me in this way. And I want you to love me in this way. Attend stuff. Like, show up. Of course, Sunday mornings, but when we offer additional Bible studies or uh, a cookout that's coming up in a couple of weeks, like, just 
optional stuff in the life of the local church. Show up. It's a great way to just be present with each other and to, and to get to know who is it that I am to care for and, and, and what are they going through and in what ways might I be concerned for them and seek to pursue them. Also, we see here that the greats not only are concerned, but they celebrate when the wanderer is restored. When the one who has been lost, they've been out there, they come back, they're restored. I love hearing testimonies of restoration in our church. People who were in sin, and then they come back and they say, you know, I, I was just celebrated. Nobody, like, looked down on me. They didn't point their finger out. They just seemed to celebrate the fact that I was back. Praise God for that. Well done, brothers and sisters. We celebrate. The greats in the kingdom of heaven celebrate the wanderer being restored. And then somebody in the room says, well, that's not fair. Because they don't celebrate me, and I'm here every week. I'm not getting the big thank you for coming. I'm not getting the celebration. Well, friends, I would encourage you to read the, the, the story of the prodigal son. The older brother stays back, does the right thing, and there is no fatted uh, calf that is, uh, that is slaughtered for him. There is no robe put on his shoulders. No, he is to simply join in the celebration of the one who's been lost now restored, but he refuses to do so because of his pride. Remember the first step in becoming great? It's to become small. What is humility? Humility is to use your gifts not for yourself, but to use your gifts for the service of others. That's humility. And in the context of the local church, this is what it looks like. And in the context of the local church, when we have together used our resources and our gifts for the sake of others and a wanderer has been restored, we all join in that celebration as brothers and sisters brought humbly before our Savior, Jesus Christ. We join in the celebration. We celebrate when someone is restored. Verse 14. Let me read it. It says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Listen, what we're talking about here is the heart of God. We're talking about the heart of the Father. It's not His will that any of you perish. As we recognize how sinful sin is and as we use our gifts to humbly serve one another, we're just simply reflecting the heart of God. Friends, you were lost. You were the sheep that had gone astray. And Christ was the good shepherd who came after you. Ultimately, we don't even trust in each other. We trust in Christ. He's the one that keeps us. He's the one that secures our redemption. He is the one that holds us in the flock. He's the one that pursues us when we are wandering. Listen, we should not focus on ourselves, on our own status. Yet, because of the nature of sin in our own flesh, we are so prone to do so. Because we are prone to worship ourselves and our status and what people think of us, we are prone to walk over the weak, to demonize the weak. We are prone toward injustice and racism and all kinds of evil. 
because of our pride. But family, Christ is the shepherd who thought it not equal to be, uh, robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself. The shepherd who came into our world, who sought after us, who died in our place. We can then humbly throw ourselves unto this shepherd and then throw ourselves into love, this kind of love for each other, out of the love that we have with Jesus Christ. Since God does not despise, we must understand that true greatness means humbly caring for his people. How do we do it? We change. We change. We turn. We, we convert. But how do you change yourself? How does the caterpillar change himself into a butterfly? How does summer change itself into fall? It doesn't. God has built into creation change that happens with or without our liking. Friends, change comes from God. Change comes from God. Change begins when we humbly set ourselves before Jesus and recognize that we are like a child lost in the mall and we need him. Change happens when we cry after him and seek him. And friends, I, I guarantee you that you'll find him. Have you ever sought Christ in that way? Have you ever sought after him as your only hope? Have you ever sought after him as the one through whom all of your needs are met? Have you ever sought after Christ like a child? Have you ever known the joy of finding him, your Savior? Seek him now. Find him now. True greatness is not about your status, but it is about service. Through Christ, protect this house. Protect one another. Serve one another. Pursue one another. Great people love greatly. Let's follow the heart of our Father. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us to do just that, to be people who are humbled under the weight of our sin, who recognize that Jesus Christ is our Savior, who find our strength and satisfaction in him alone. And from that point, God, I pray that we would have great concern for each other, that we would protect one another from sin. And I pray, God, that we would protect ourselves from sin. And we ask that you would help us to, in love, pursue those who are wandering into sin. Let us be this kind of community. Let us recognize that love begins with a concern for holiness, Christ-likeness. Let us know your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.